Thank you. Would you bow your heads and pray with me this morning? Father, we love you and we thank you for the opportunity, Lord, to just gather together as your people, to sing your praises, Lord, to hear your word. And Lord, during this part of our worship this morning, I ask that you would help us all, Lord, now tune in to open our hearts, Lord, and to look to you by faith. Lord, thank you. You know exactly where each one of us is. You love us. You pursue us. Some here today have followed you for many, many years of their life. I pray you'd meet them here this morning and show more of yourself, infinite God, to them. There's others that are here that are still not quite sure about the message of the Bible, about the person of the Lord Jesus. I'm so thankful they're here, Lord, that you've brought them today, and I ask, God, that you administer to their hearts. Help us all, Lord, to walk out these doors here in a very short time from now. Lord, understanding you better, because when we do, we can't help but be drawn to your beauty. I pray, Lord, that you'd reveal yourself to us as we look to your word. We do this, and we ask this in the powerful and the risen name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Thank you for coming and being with us this morning. Um, you know, I've been in Florida now since 2001. What is it, 2016? Been here a long time. And you'd think by now I'd sort of get it, uh, what it's like that Christmas just creeps up on me every year. I don't know if you, anybody else is a snowbird and you can relate to what I'm talking about, but I'm just this idea. The other day I was riding my bike on my workout and it was 82 degrees. I mean, that's crazy. All right, this is, this is Christmas, we're not supposed to. So there's Christmas decorations on the house, but it still doesn't compute. And so as I was preparing this message, as Tam said, it hit me. There's 14 days left until shopping for Christmas, and then it's here. It's like, how does that happen? It happens every year. But uh, as, as much as I'm still getting used to shorts and T-shirts for Christmas, um, I, I wouldn't trade it for the world. I, I've seen the news recently. I wouldn't want to go back. I'm really glad, though, that we as a community um, have had the tradition ever since I've been a part of Summit, dating back to 2005, uh, where we celebrate and observe Advent. And Advent is our fancy Christian way of basically saying the arrival of Jesus on earth. And so for the four weeks leading up to Christmas Eve, uh, this season is always so good for my soul. And it's good because once again, I get to take a fresh look at what for me is a very familiar message. But I want to remind us this morning, this is not just some fable made up to be a part of our society. This is the truest and the most sure thing in our world today. There is a time in history where a virgin teenage girl, Mary, was with child and she brought into this world a baby his name is Jesus, 2,000 years ago in the city of Bethlehem. And the Bible says he is Emmanuel, God with us. And that's what we're doing during the Advent season. We're remembering and preparing so that we can once again be awestruck by the mystery of God's great love for us. We've been studying Isaiah chapter 9 and verse 6 this Advent season. And if you've been with us, Zach, these past two weeks has been careful to give us the context of what was happening in the time of Isaiah. Isaiah is a prophet, which basically means he was God's spokesperson. 
And the time Isaiah was living was 700 years before the coming of Christ. And it was a time in Israel's history, like frequently happened, that unfortunately Israel was very wayward in their hearts towards God. They were drifting from God. So although they were going through all the religious motions and all the religious services, their hearts were far from God. Assyria, it's not a good time to do this because Assyria, uh, the most powerful nation on earth at that time, um, was into conquering lands and new countries, and it was Israel's turn. And so they amassed this massive army that struck fear and awe into the hearts of people that were next. And they amassed this army of almost 200,000 soldiers that were sitting poised, ready to take over. And I just want you to think, you know, this is a bad time for Israel to be walking away from God. Um, and could you imagine the fear that you would feel if just on the outskirts of Orlando was this massive horde that was ready to come in and brutalize us and to take over and to put us in subjugation under their rule. It would be just terrifying. We can hardly understand that living here in America. Sure, this last week we remembered Pearl Harbor um, and every September we, we remember 9-11. But those were attacks. We've never had a more powerful nation sitting right on our border ready to send their armies in that would take us over and we would be under their rule for extended periods of time. We've never had to live with that fear. I met someone who does. I was actually in China a number of years ago. And there in China, I met a pastor from South Korea. And he told me about uh, the church in South Korea, that one of the characteristics about the church there is they're a real praying church. I mean, they really pray. And they have these places where they go that are prayer mountains where families would even take their entire vacation to go as a family to this prayer mountain so that they can pray for their vacation. There are certain places in Korea where there's been unbroken chains of prayer 24 hours a day that have gone on for years and decades. And I asked him why. What are some of the things that have caused the Korean people to become such committed people of prayer? And he said, well, perhaps the greatest thing is just north of our border, just north of the 38th parallel, there's an amassed army of over a million soldiers ready at any moment and who are constantly threatening, threatening, who are constantly saber-rattling, and at any money, uh, moment could come pouring over the border. And we know what that would mean for us as Christians. And so we're constantly crying out to God because we desperately feel our need. Like the South Korean Christians, the Jews of Isaiah's day, they needed God desperately. The difference is, unlike the South Korean Christians, the Jews of Isaiah's day didn't trust God. They weren't turning to him. They were ignoring Isaiah's pleas. And instead, they sought to make alliances with other nations, thinking they would be better equipped to protect them than God. Now, naturally, Isaiah lets them know, hey, this is not a very good idea. Uh, whenever we deliberately choose to transfer our trust from God to someone or something else, it's not a good idea. So he warns Israel. The pathway that they're on is going to lead to defeat and years of untold pain and suffering. It's going to be a difficult time in their history. So interestingly, as you study Isaiah, interspersed with the first 40 chapters, which is largely about the coming catastrophe, 
interspersed throughout this is God, and this just tells us volumes about his nature, is also giving words of comfort. But he's not just comforting the people of, that were contemporaries of Isaiah. He's actually recording for us words that reveal God's plan for all of us, for all people, for all time. And he's expressing to us his plan driven by his character of goodness and love and what his plan is for all people of all time. And the passage we've been studying, Isaiah 9-6, it's one of those words of comfort as God reveals his plan. Let me read it again. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders. He'll be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Today we're going to talk about Jesus, who is the Prince of Peace from God. Now, I want to look at the words Prince of Peace in the original Hebrew language. The words are Sar Shalom. And the reason I want to do that in this particular case, we miss a little bit in the translation, okay? So let me start with Sar. In our culture, it, it, it means prince, but we don't understand prince in our culture. We've got Disney and we've got fairy tales, and so it kind of brings together the wrong image. The image that would come to mind when they say the prince of peace is Sar means commander, it means chief, it means ruler captain, prince. It's the leader who's coming with authority. He's coming from the king of kings and the lord of lords. And he's coming as God to this earth with all authority. And his authority is specifically to bring shalom, peace. Now, shalom is a word that is just, it's, you, could, you could describe it, we could have a whole sermon just on shalom, uh, which today we're gonna really touch and, and explore. It's the idea, it's more than just peace. It's the idea of life the way God intended it to be when we're in perfect relationship with God and with one another. It's a life of fullness, a life of contentment, a life that is just overflowing. In one interpretation, it's a life that has become fat in a good way because of such an abundance of blessing in our lives. You see, in Israel, even today, it's very common for people to give the greeting shalom. And they're saying far more than, hey, hope you have a good day. What they're saying when they're saying shalom is a blessing. May God have you today experience him in his fullness. And may you experience the fullness of life the way he intended it when he thought you up. That's what they mean when they say prince of peace. The Sar Shalom. Isn't that beautiful? What God is saying to us is, I have a plan. I'm sending one with authority, with a task of bringing Shalom to his world. And it's a comforting and a thrilling idea. Oh, can you imagine a world without war? Can you imagine all people living in harmony and love, experiencing life to the full under the reign of God? Well, if you've looked at the news in the last 24 hours, all you got to do is look at it any day. We quite haven't attained to that yet. Have you ever asked yourself why? Why is peace so elusive? When we think about world peace, we'd all agree peace is something we've longed for, but we've never 
been able in the history, recorded history of, of, of mankind, we've never been able to figure out world peace. In 1901, we established, or they established the Nobel Peace Prize. And since that time, there have been 100 individuals and 25 organizations that have been recognized for their tireless service or their sacrifice and their work that they gave, sometimes their entire life work, to bring peace to some corner of the world. And the fact that we do that every year shows that we long for peace. There's something in all of us that want that to be true. But the fact that we give it every year also indicates that we haven't figured out how to do it yet. Because as hard as they've worked and the, the wonderful things that they've done, the peace that gets established is always tentative at best. And so we live in a world without peace. Have you ever asked yourself why? Why is it so elusive? Let's talk about relational peace, relational shalom. God wants us to have it in our relational world as well, between friends, among families, in our marriages, uh, with, with our children, in our neighborhoods, between the races. God wants us to have shalom. But again, we just have to go to the water cooler at work and you hear the gossip and the backbiting and you can feel the tension in the relationships and we know we don't have it. Just ask any of the thousands of counselors that are out there. Relational peace is difficult to obtain and really difficult to maintain. And I want to ask you this morning, why? Why is relational peace so elusive? Let's look inside of our hearts. It's not just peace out there. It's peace in our soul, peace in our inner world. The peace that we long for is a life free of anxiety, a life free of worry. A life that has wholeness and contentment and satisfaction. A life that can be at rest no matter what storms are going on around us. Well, again, we know from personal experience that eventually the clouds can come rolling in. And there's some people here today that you wonder if they're ever going to leave. Why is it so hard to have inner peace as well? I want to talk to you some, about something this morning that's not easy to talk about. And I want to assure you that long before I talk to you about this message, this is a message is one that has been for me first. But the reason why peace is so elusive is because of the problem of sin. So I want to talk to you about that for just a moment. Sin is at the core of every war. It's at the center of every broken relationship. It is the reason our inner world is confused because we have been separated from our God because of our sin. Our sin is the reason peace is so elusive. Now, I want to talk to you about it. Um, it's kind of easy to talk about in the general sense, but it's much more difficult to talk about sin in the specific sense. In Romans chapter 3, verse 23, it says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And who doesn't believe that? There are more people, you may not realize this, who acknowledge the reality of sin than who acknowledge the reality of God. Those who do not acknowledge the reality of God, atheists or agnostics, um, first of all, if you, if you don't believe there's a God and you're here today, I am so glad you're here. Thank you for coming. We want Summit to be a safe place for you to hear uh, the message of Jesus and the message of God. 
If you're an agnostic trying to figure out, is it or isn't it? Who is God? We're just so glad you're here. Thank you for coming. But I can almost guarantee you something this morning, that you acknowledge sin. Let me tell you how I know. Where are your car keys right now? Are they in your car with the window rolled down, uh, in the ignition, in the car unlocked? Or are they in your pocket? Because if they're in your pocket, you acknowledge the reality of sin. How about when you left your house this morning? Did you lock the door on the way out? If so, you acknowledge the reality of sin. For me, I like to study a lot of times I get out of the office, especially if I'm preparing messages or writing something. And I like to go to McDonald's or Starbucks and get a cup of coffee. And inevitably, I'm there uh, so long that the effects of caffeine start kicking in and I need to go to the restroom. I know, way too much information, I'm sorry. Um, but you know, so I, I'm stuck at that moment and I'm looking at my computer and usually my keys are out, my phone and everything's kind of strewn everywhere. And I think, do I leave it here? Or do I gather it all up? Will the bathroom come back? Every time I gather it up, why? Because I acknowledge the reality of sin. I know, just like you do, there's people out there trying to get what they don't deserve. So generally speaking, I think all of us acknowledge that we live in a world filled with sin. But it comes, when it comes to us, when it comes to me, it gets way, way more difficult. And I can tell this because the language shifts from language of acknowledgement to language of denial or justification or rationalization. We say things like, I, I may have some sin, but <laughs> at least I'm not as bad as what's going on over there. Did you see that? I'm, the, I'm not that bad. And so we start comparing and we start rationalizing. Uh, Dr. Joel Hunter, a pastor over at Northland Community Church, uh, he tells a story of someone in his church who uh, was a salesman and would often go into the prisons. And so um, that was part of his clients. And there um, he had an opportunity to actually uh, talk to some of the, the inmates and uh, struck up some friendships from time to time. And uh, tells a story of one particular um, inmate that he had a friend with um, who was in for robbery. Um, and they would often talk about what's going on on the outside, and, and the salesman said to his friend, yeah, I heard something just un unbelievable today. Uh, somebody went in, committed a robbery at the home, but not only took the possessions, but they killed the inhabitants of the home. And he said his friend who was in for robbery just hung his head. Oh, guys like that, they give robbery a bad name. <laughs> and he looked at him, and he's like, he goes, yeah. He goes, I, I never robbed from poor people. I only robbed from rich people. And the reason I robbed from rich people is because I knew they had insurance. And insurance companies, they're just wealthy. And we know they're being run by a bunch of crooks anyway. And so he justified it in his mind. And we all do that, don't we? When it comes to specific sin, we can do that. We rationalize or we blame shift. We go here. We think we've got a spouse problem or we think we've got a kid problem, or a boss problem, or a work problem, or if the employees around me just were better, if I had better neighbors, and so we blame. But I wanna tell you that even if we changed all that, and it was a perfect environment for you to be in, it wouldn't fix it. 
because it runs deep. It goes into our core. It's something that flows from our heart. It's hard to acknowledge sin. I mean real sin. It's really hard to go there. But I want you to go there this morning. First, let me explain what it is. Sin is not just some mistake. All other religions kind of view it that way. You see, you can cure a mistake or you can correct or fix a mistake. And that's what they teach is if you can just kind of do a little bit more, you can outweigh the bad or you can self-actualization get better so that you no longer have that problem. The Bible doesn't teach of sin in that way. Sin, it says, is deeply inside of us. It's part of our nature. There's nothing we can do to eradicate sin from our own lives and our own hearts. So sin is what has broken our relationships. And it starts with our most important relationship, our relationship with God. We read this morning the passage from Hebrews, or from Romans, excuse me, Romans chapter 5. And in that passage, it teaches us that before we were Christians, we weren't at peace with God and he wasn't at peace with us. In fact, because of God's holy nature, the Bible says that God considered us his enemies. That's pretty heavy. You see, God hates every hurtful word. God hates every act of injustice and brutality, and he always has. He hates all infidelity, every lie, every robbery, every murder, every look of pride, every look of self-sufficiency. God hates all the acts and all the thoughts that run contrary to his good and perfect nature and will. About now, you might be looking at the person who brought you and elbowing him in the side a little bit and saying, hey, I thought you said that this was going to be a Christmas message this morning. <laughs> We're going to get there. But to really understand Christmas, we had to go here. Because if we do, we can begin to understand God as he really is. And we can understand his love in a way that will draw us that we might fall in love with him. Once we're able to acknowledge our own sin, we begin to understand the cross. You see, you really don't understand the cross until you understand your need for the cross. The theologian John Stott put it this way, we won't understand the cross as something done for us until we understand the cross as something done by us. We were the reason. We were the reason Jesus went to the cross and freely gave his life and shed his blood. And we have to face this very harsh reality. We've inherited this tendency to want to put ourselves at the center of the universe, to put ourselves on the throne, and we want it to all revolve around us, not God. So what was God's solution? He decided to send to us his Sahar Shalom, his Prince of Peace. Let's look together at the passage that we read that finds him, that finds Jesus in the last place the Jews would have ever expected their Messiah to be. In this passage, we find Jesus hanging on a cross, dying, having been crucified by the very people that he loved and created. Let's begin in verse 38. You can look on and read out long in your bulletins. 
there was written a notice above him which read, this is the king of the Jews. One of the criminals who hung there hurled insults at him. Aren't you the Messiah? Save yourself and us. But the other criminal rebuked him. Don't you fear God, he said, since you're under the same sentence? We're punished justly, for we're getting what our deeds deserve. But this man, he's done nothing wrong. Then he said to Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus answered him, truly I tell you, today you will be with me in paradise. Have you ever asked yourself, why did Jesus die on the cross? Why did he choose to do that? Why did God allow that? It's a pretty profound question. Why didn't he just do what Israel expected him to do, which was in this awesome cosmic display of power, just show up and just, I'm God, you're not, take it, let's go. All right, why didn't he do that? I mean, the Bible says that Jesus, when he was hanging on the cross, in another passage, he could have called 10,000 angels to come and rescue him. Now, all he needed was one, because later in Isaiah, an angel comes and goes up against this massive army, and in one night, one angel, 187,000 soldiers were just wiped out. Could you imagine what 10,000 could do? <laughs> oh, my goodness. That would be a cosmic display of power. But he didn't do that. You see, he didn't want subjugation or forced rule. He wanted to deal a decisive blow to the thing that is wrong in the human heart. He wanted to destroy sin and death forever. And there was only one way for that to happen. The only thing that could happen is he needed to do for us what we could never do for ourselves. As Zach likes to say, and I love this phrase, he lived the life that we were supposed to live, and he died the death that we all deserved. You see, God is holy. We need to think about what that means. It means he can't just wink an eye at sin and kind of, <laughs> didn't see it, go ahead. You see, because if he did that, he wouldn't be just. And if he's not just, he can no longer be holy. He can no longer be God. He can't separate himself from that aspect of his character. Sin demands justice. Now, the good news is he's also loving in a way that we can never fully comprehend in this lifetime. He's so loving that he willingly took our place and he paid the penalty that we all owed God. That's the greatest act of love that this universe will ever know. In his infinite wisdom, God's Sar Shalom, the one with authority to establish a relationship with God and bring peace to his creation, did just that. Now notice the response of the thief on the cross. Verse 41. We're being punished justly for we're getting what our deeds deserve. But this man has done nothing wrong. There's no arrogant taunting. He was able to go to the place we all need to go. You see, he was able to recognize his own sin. There were no excuses. There was no rationalization. There was no justification going on. Just a simple acknowledgement. I'm getting what I deserve. But not only just an acknowledgement of he's getting what he deserves. It was a recognition that he's sinful, that he's broken. And it was a realization that he needed God to do for him what he could never do for himself. 
So in humility and in faith, he cried out to Jesus, remember me today when you enter your kingdom. And the response is what we all long to hear and we all need for our soul. He promised that today you will be with me in paradise. He would experience shalom, peace that very day. Do you see it? Do you see the brilliance and wisdom of our God today? He didn't just show up and establish his rule. He loved us too much. He had to get something done first. And trust me, one day Jesus will rule and reign on this planet and he will be king of kings and is king of kings and lord of lords and all nations will be under his reign. But there's this time right now where he first wanted to make it possible for us to have a relationship with him so that we could have new life and a new heart. The Bible has a fancy word for what Jesus did for us on the cross. It's called justification. What it basically means is that we have been made right with God. So much so that when God looks at us, he no longer sees our sin. He no longer considers us as enemies. In fact, it's the exact opposite. He's brought us near to himself through the cleansing of the blood, shed blood of his son. He's forgiven us all of our sins. And when he looks at you, if you've put your faith in Christ, he sees you as perfect, spotless, blameless as his beloved children. That's what Jesus did for us. Now, as his children, he wants us to grow. And it'll be a process. It'll be a process to grow into more looking like and loving like Jesus. But as we do, we're going to start experiencing shalom in our relationships. We won't be perfect at it, but we can get better as we grow. And as we become the people of love, we are invited by God to join him in his work of bringing shalom to all the nations on earth. As Jesus said, at the end of his life, go therefore and make disciples of all the nations. What a great God that we serve. So I have a blessing for you this morning, a prayer blessing. And here it is. May you come to know Jesus and his forgiveness. May you live in deep, rich relationship with him. And may you experience the shalom of God this Christmas season. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your word. Thank you, Lord, for just your incredible wisdom. Who could conceive, Lord, of love so divine that you and your perfection and holiness would become the very thing that you hate, that you be, would become sin on our behalf, that you might receive in your body the just penalty deserved for us all. And in that moment, spotless Lamb of God, you defeated for all time death and sin, and you rose from the dead so that all who may come and look to you and cry out to you by faith may have eternal life. My prayer, Lord, for those that do know you and are Christ followers, that they would just grow deeper in love with you today, having freshly looked once again at the eternal message of what you've done for us. And my prayer for those that are here that may not know, God, I pray today might be the day that they cross that line of faith and decide to receive in themselves your grace and your mercy as they begin to follow you. We love you, Lord. Please receive 
our hearts of worship as we continue in worship this morning. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.